Good morning, CCBC. It is a joy, a privilege, and an honor to be with you here today. I'm looking out at the crowd, so I was here just over a year ago. It would have been December of 2019. I was preaching in Fort Smith, and I think I recognize some of you, but uh, such is life with masks today. I recognize some of your eyes and foreheads. Uh, perhaps we met the last time I was in town. If we didn't, I would love to meet you after the service, say hello, and uh, obviously I'm looking forward to being with you a little bit later uh, today as well in, this, uh, in, in the evening service. Uh, as Blake mentioned, I'm the pastor of Chevrolet Baptist Church in Chevrolet, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and I want to bring greetings from our congregation to you. Uh, they actually haven't met yet today, uh, even though we're on the East Coast, because of the coronavirus restrictions, our services have been just all messed up this past year. We've had to meet outside, uh, we've moved inside, then back outside again, then back inside, and then to a different church, and then to here and to there, a bit like the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, because of the occupancy restrictions that we're facing in and around D.C., uh, we have to meet in another church about 20 minutes away from our neighborhood that's much larger, that can fit most of our people. So they don't meet until 2.30 uh, this afternoon. So uh, when I pray for the preaching of the word this morning, I'm going to pray again for, for us. But uh, just want to thank you all for your hospitality and allowing me to come and bring God's word to you. Uh, so I hope we're all encouraged by God's word this morning. Let me pray one more time, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you to speak. We are nothing without you. We pray, O oh God, that you would grant us ears to hear and eyes to see your glory. All the other so-called gods of the world are false gods. They do not speak, they cannot see, they cannot hear, but you are a God who sees and speaks and hears. Speak to your people this morning. Build us up in your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And I pray that you would bless the saints at CBC this afternoon when they gather. I'll build them up. We are all one body, united by faith to your son, Jesus Christ. Build up your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, according to Forbes magazine, uh, in 2018, the largest criminal enterprise in the world was, who wants to take a guess? The largest criminal enterprise in the world was identity theft, drug trafficking, maybe human trafficking, this might take you by surprise. The largest criminal enterprise in the world was counterfeiting. I guess that would fall into it a little bit. Counterfeiting. Sales of counterfeit and pirated goods totaled more than $1.7 trillion. And it's estimated that by 2022, sales of counterfeit goods will exceed $2.8 trillion and cost 5.4 million jobs. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development states that counterfeit products encompass all products made to closely imitate the appearance of the product of another so as to mislead consumers. And the leading industries that have been seriously affected by counterfeiting are software, that is computer software, music recordings, motion pictures, Luxury goods and fashion clothes, sportswear, perfumes, toys, get this next one, aircraft components. Aircraft, I'm thinking about my flight back to Washington, D.C. Lord, please do not let me get on an American Airlines flight with like counterfeit aircraft components. Car accessories, pharmaceuticals, the list goes on and on. And in order to fight back against counterfeiters, certain industries have been very vocal about knockoffs of their products, and they've gone about publishing criteria for determining whether a particular item is authentic or counterfeit. So uh, think about designers like Louis Vuitton and, and Kate Spade and other like them. They tell their customers, hey, inspect the stitching, look at the logo. Look at the zippers, the packaging, and so, and so on. Because while counterfeits 
might look genuine from a distance, when you get up close, you start to realize it's not the authentic thing. But you know, it's not just sectors like luxury goods or software or airplane parts that are affected by counterfeits. Christian ministry is also affected by counterfeits. What distinguishes a genuine and authentic Christian ministry from a counterfeit one? Is there some sort of criteria for authenticity that we can look for to determine, hey, is the Christian ministry that we're a part of, is my, is my minister, my preacher of the gospel an authentic one, or is he a counterfeit? Is this church an authentic one or a counterfeit? How can we know? Is there some sort of criteria that we can look to in God's word to tell us? Well, in fact, there is. So I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 29 this morning. And there we're going to find the Apostle Paul lays out for us two defining characteristics of genuine gospel ministry. How can you distinguish between a genuine pastor and a counterfeit one? How can you tell if you are part of genuine gospel ministry or participating in counterfeit gospel ministry? Well, follow along as I read for us Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29, and I trust that as I do, the answer will become clear. This is God's word. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. In verses 24 to 29, we see that genuine gospel ministers and ministries are marked by suffering for Christ and preaching Christ. Genuine gospel ministers and ministries are marked by suffering for Christ and preaching Christ. And if you're taking notes this morning, those are going to be my two points for us today. The first mark of authentic Christian ministry that we see is suffering for Christ. Look at verse 24 again. And Paul says there, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, before we we look at suffering for Christ as a mark of genuine Christian ministry, we need to understand what Paul means when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In what way are Christ's afflictions lacking, Paul? What on earth do you mean by that? Well, we we know what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that Jesus' suffering and death were somehow insufficient for your salvation and redemption. And we know that because in the rest of chapter 1 thus far, in, in the rest of chapter 1 of Colossians alone, Paul says that Jesus' death reconciles us to God, disarms the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, cancels our debt, and is the reason we are redeemed and completely forgiven of our sins. Right By his death and resurrection, Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished to bring you and I to God. Which is why on the cross Jesus said, it is finished. Why did he say it is finished? 
Because it is finished. Nothing left to be done to bring you and I to God. Nothing lacking in it. When Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, the verb that he uses for filling up can be also translated as completing or bringing to completion. He uses the same word uh, two other times in the New Testament. And in both of those places, it means to make up for a person's absence by representing them. So what Paul is saying here is that he's representing, manifesting the suffering of Christ to the people that he ministered to. It's as though if Paul were saying here, standing here today, he'd be saying to you, Jesus suffered and died in the past, 2,000 years ago, and you weren't there to see his sufferings. You weren't there to see God's power displayed in his weakness, and so God has granted me to suffer in your presence so that you can see his power made perfect through my weakness. God wants to display his power to his people. And so Paul, as a minister of the gospel, is displaying the power of Christ to them in his sufferings. But we do need to take a step back and ask the question, why is Paul talking about his suffering at all? Let's think about the context of chapter 1 of Colossians. I think you guys heard a sermon on verses 15 to 23 about a month ago, so you would have seen some of this then. But let's think about the whole context of chapter 1 and see how it all ties together. All of chapter 1 has been about the power of the gospel. In verses 3 through 8, the power of the gospel is seen in the fact that the gospel is bearing fruit, not only in Fort Smith, not only in Chevrolet, Maryland, but all around the world. That's the power of the gospel. Then in verses 9 to 14, Paul prays for the Colossians to continue bearing gospel fruit in their lives, walking in a manner worthy of God. Then in verses 15 to 23, he describes the preeminence of Jesus Firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one over all creation whose death and resurrection are at the heart of the gospel. That is how you and I have been forgiven of our sins. So what do Paul's sufferings have to do with the gospel? The reason he's telling them why he's suffering and what his suffering means is because false teachers were coming around them and telling the Colossians that the gospel wasn't enough to save them. The gospel isn't the power of God. That was one of their arguments. You're going to see that in chapter 2 and chapter 3 alike. And one of their main arguments against the power and truth of the gospel was Paul. Look at Paul, they say. He's weak. He's not eloquent. He doesn't look the part. He's not charismatic enough. And on top of all of that, he's suffering. His suffering is proof that his ministry and his message are bunk. You need to listen to us. We're going to lead you in the path of true wisdom and knowledge. We're going to teach you how to have the best life now, right? Paul wants them to know, no, no, no. My sufferings are proof of the authenticity of my ministry, He wants them to know that suffering doesn't undermine the truth of the gospel, nor does it undermine the ministry of those who preach the gospel. Suffering is a a mark of genuine Christian ministry. And when we talk about suffering as a mark of authentic Christian ministry, it's it's helpful to understand the way that uh, Paul is using that word suffering, right? We tend to think about suffering in terms of acute persecution or acute pain or acute sorrow, and it certainly includes those things. But the way Paul is using the word is much broader than that. Right? The suffering he's talking about does include persecution, but it also refers to just all, all of the toiling, the laboring, the struggling that's involved with carrying out the work of the ministry. I mean, think of all of the ways in the New Testament that Paul suffered that had nothing to do with persecution, right? Three times he was shipwrecked. 
He was bitten by a viper. He was chased by robbers. He experienced anxiety for all the churches. He had a thorn in the flesh that he begged for God to remove. He was hard-pressed. He despaired of life. And then all of that was on top of the persecutions he experienced. Suffering is a mark of genuine Christian ministry and genuine Christian ministers. It's not to say that if you're not experiencing suffering as a minister of the gospel at every moment or as a, as a Christian ministry, as a church, that your, your church or your minister is not authentic. It's to say, don't be surprised by it. It will come to all who are seeking to faithfully proclaim the gospel and all who are faithfully seeking to gather around the gospel and walk and follow the stricken and suffering servant. Don't be surprised by it. And that's why I want to encourage all of you to pray for Blake and Julie, right? The majority of you are well aware of the suffering they've experienced this past year. That would clearly fall into the types of sufferings Paul has in mind here. But that's just one example of a seemingly endless variety of sufferings that faithful ministers of the gospel experience. It seems to me to be the case that when a man seeks to lead a church in faithfulness to Jesus... God then graciously allows that man to feel the weight of the cross more heavily. And the reason he does that is so that the people he's leading might more clearly see God's power made perfect in his weakness. From being attacked by other Christians to spiritual and physical depression to bearing the weight of the ministry to loneliness, to having anxiety for your growth in the faith. He's going to have anxiety that you all would be maturing in the faith, just like I do for the saints at Chevrolet. I want to see him built up in Christ. I want to see myself built up in Christ. Like, Lord, please make us more holy. To being in Satan's crosshairs. The list of possible sufferings that your pastor will experience is extensive. So pray for him and pray for Julie. As she supports him in the work. They're a team together as they're seeking to to help build you up in the faith. Pray for God to comfort them, encourage them, and protect them when suffering comes. But this passage isn't only speaking to Blake and Julie. Paul's talking to all Christians. All of y'all, right? He wants you to know that suffering, toiling, laboring, And struggling is a mark of all genuine Christian ministry. So you shouldn't be surprised when this church experiences suffering. You shouldn't be surprised if there's difficulty and laboring and toiling to get this church planted and sustained and growing and going, right? Don't be surprised when it comes. Just think about what scripture says about suffering in the New Testament, about how Christians should respond to it. First, It has been granted to you that you should not only believe, thank you, Lord, but also suffer for his sake. Oh, maybe I'll give that gift back. That's a a gift from God to you that you might be more uh, ushered into the sufferings of Christ, that you might come to know Christ more fully. It has been granted to you to not only believe, but suffer for his sake. Or it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. Not a few, not some, many. Like one after another. And sometimes, speaking as a pastor of another church, it can feel like one after another. The last three years of my life has been like, Lord, please, just for a second, would you turn the heat down? Like I, I am like, I feel like I am about to catch fire and burn up, not in, the be- not in like the spiritually like zealous way. Like I'm about to be consumed. But he knows what is best. So when suffering comes, understand that God knows what is best. And he's going to bring you into the crucible of suffering in order to refine your faith. Make you more like Christ. And that, friends, we'll see, is the point. But it's not only Acts 14, 22. There's my personal favorite, right? Whoever will come after me must take up his lazy boy and follow me. So y'all are paying attention, right? That's not what he says, right? He doesn't say, take up your cozy blanket or your precious mattress. He said, take up your cross and follow me. The burdens of the cross, 
the agonies of the cross, the sorrows of the cross, the pain of the cross, the death of the cross will be carried by those who have chosen to follow Jesus. You will carry it, and it will be for your good. I mentioned what the last year has been like for Blake and Julie, but I know that that experience also included suffering for many of you. That's what Paul is talking about here. And yet, there will be more. You will inevitably experience more toiling, more laboring, more struggling, and suffering. There will be the toiling and laboring of sustaining the church plant, right? Blake walked me through the building yesterday. Oh, another leak. Oh, another this, another that. Like, there will be building problems. Like, we need to sustain this. Right? How are we going to do this? We've got to have a place to meet. There's going to be those toilings and laborings, right? It also includes the struggling of having difficult conversations to preserve the unity of the church. That will happen. Why? Because this is a church full of sinners. There's no genuine Christian church that's not full of sinners. And so there will be divisions that you need to work hard against to preserve the unity of the church. There will be the suffering of seeing people walk away from the faith. There will be the suffering of laboring in prayer for the lost, There will be the struggling and toiling of maturing in the faith and having friends and family oppose you because of what they're seeing in your life. Like, hey, you're becoming a little too holy there, okay? Like, we don't like what we're seeing in your life. What's wrong with you? That happens as well, right? All of these and so many others are ways that we suffer, labor, toil, and struggle. It belongs to our calling as Christians. The suffering associated with Christian ministry isn't a sign that your faith is defective. And it's not a sign that the gospel is defective. It's a mark of authentic Christian ministry. There is no path to following Jesus that does not include suffering. It doesn't exist, right? One author pointed out, though, that suffering is at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ became like and redeemed us, but it is one of the main ways we become like, like him, and experience his redemption. And that means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purpose and usefulness. And because it's filled with purpose and usefulness, we can rejoice in the midst of it. That's why Paul could rejoice in his sufferings. Look again at verse 24. Notice what he says. He starts off. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now listen, we just got to like caveat this here. Paul isn't saying that he pretends like his sufferings don't exist. He just ignores them, right? He's not saying that. In fact, he, he describes his sufferings at length in his writings. And he isn't saying just grin and bear it. Right, so if you encounter another Christian in this church who's suffering and they seem to be suffering, they're sorrowful, they're grieving, you shouldn't be like, hey, just rejoice, brother or sister, right? Like, because suffering hurts. Paul even despaired of life at times, but he could rejoice in the midst of it because he knew what God was doing through it. Paul fully acknowledged and embraced the sufferings of life, mourn with those who mourn, right? He fully felt the labor and the toil and the struggles of ministry, but he was able to rejoice in the midst of them because he knew that ultimately God was using them to renew his inner self and was preparing for him an eternal weight of glory that was beyond all comparison. And even more than that, he could rejoice because he, was, he knew that God was using his sufferings in order to do the same for the Colossians. Two different times in verse 24, he says his suffering is for their sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul rejoices because he recognizes that not only is God working in his life to strengthen his faith through his suffering, but God is bringing others to faith and strengthening their faith through his suffering. And he uses your suffering and mine in the same way. Our sufferings not only strengthen and refine our own faith as God strips away earthly comforts and causes us to rely more and more on him, but he uses them to strengthen and refine the faith of others. I'll just give you a a personal example from my own life. My father-in-law passed away this past July. The most godly man I have ever known, the man that I want to be like when when I get older, right? Just an unbelievably uh, Christ-like man. And he was like that 
you know, for the entire, entirety of the time that I knew him, but then it was two years ago that he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and watching him walk through that, just watching his body waste away, there was a literal, there was an inverse relationship between how much he was wasting away and how much his faith was being strengthened, such that I asked him, like, Tom, you've got to be questioning why God would allow this to happen. He's like, John, that, that question has never crossed my mind. God is good. God will always be good. And God is doing more work in my life now than he's ever done in other type parts of my life through this suffering. And then watching Tom do that, I'm like, whoa, God is so good. My faith was strengthened. My faith was refined. That's how God can use your suffering to strengthen and refine the faith of others. As others watch you endure suffering in hope, it helps them to see the life of Christ that is at work in you. It displays the power of God made perfect in your weakness. It has a redemptive purpose, right? Recognize how different this is from the world's view on suffering, right? The basic worldview in America today is a secular worldview. The universe came from nothing and is headed for nothing. We evolved by chance, and so everything happens by chance. Life has no objective meaning, therefore, suffering has no objective meaning and should be avoided at all costs. But Christianity says not only can suffering not be avoided because of the fall, but God uses our suffering for the greatest of all ends, which is to make us more like Christ. That alone is cause for rejoicing. But in the midst of your suffering, you also have the glorious promise that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And that in the end, when you get to heaven and you look back on your life, you will say with Paul, my sufferings were light and momentary afflictions and cannot, could not compare with the glory that has been revealed to me. In the midst of your suffering, brothers and sisters, go to the end. Stand before the throne in your mind and now look back at this life. As great as the sufferings are in comparison with what is to be revealed, they are nothing. They are not, that, that is how great the glory is that is coming, that is to be revealed to us. One author put the contrast between the world's view of suffering and Christianity's view this way. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys foreseeing the coming sorrows of death, we need to have as much fun, eat, drink, and be merry now because death is coming. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows and taste the coming joy. Right? Your best life is definitely not now. If you're trying to live your best life now, you're not living Christianity. Your best life is the one that is coming around the throne with the Lamb just living by the river of life for the rest of your life. Oh my gosh, new heavens, new earth, redemption, full redemption. That is what is coming. That's why Paul rejoiced in the midst of his suffering. He rejoiced in the joy of seeing his Savior and through his suffering bringing as many people to see the Savior as well. And we've been given that privilege as well, to share in Christ's sufferings, to share in his labors, his hardships, and his struggles that we might also share in his life. And through our suffering, invite others to do the same. So friends, understand that when you encounter suffering, it's not a sign that what you've believed is false or that God doesn't love you or isn't with you or that you need another gospel. Suffering is a mark of authentic Christian ministry and life. But it's not the only mark that we see, which brings me to my second point. We also see that another defining characteristic of, God, of genuine gospel ministry is preaching Christ. Now this is obvious because after Paul describes his suffering in verse 24, he zooms in on the specific reason that God called him to be a minister. And what is that reason? To make the word of God fully known. God called Paul for the purpose of preaching and preaching Christ. Look at verse 25. He starts off by reminding the Colossians that he didn't become a minister by his own choice. He says, I became a minister of the church according to or because of the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. All right, what's he referring to? He's referring to the fact that he wasn't always a minister of the church. In fact, he hated and persecuted the church, but then Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, gave him a new heart, 
and a new mission in life. That's the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. The way that we talk about it in 21st century America, that's your mission statement. That's Paul's mission statement. And what was that mission that God gave him to do? It was to preach Christ, right? In verse 25, Paul describes preaching Christ as making the word of God fully known, taking the scriptures and expounding them in all their fullness, taking every part of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, explaining its meaning, showing its fulfillment in Christ, and then explaining to Christians how that should change how they live in the world. But you'll notice that Paul goes on to describe the word of God as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is that, the mystery? It sounds all like new agey. What is going on here? Well, think again about the context of Colossians 1. The whole chapter has been about the power of the gospel, the good news of the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, and that at the heart of the gospel is the preeminent Christ who died to reconcile lost and ruined sinners to God. So when he calls the word of God a mystery that's now been revealed, he's referring to the fact that before the coming of Christ, it wasn't clear how and when God would fulfill his promises to send a savior and redeem for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You got all these promises of redemption and salvation just scattered, littered throughout the Old Testament. But before the coming of Christ, the saints would have looked at these promises and thought, how is this going to happen? That's why Peter in chapter 1 says the prophets, they inquired and searched diligently trying to figure out the time and manner in which these promises would be fulfilled. It was a mystery to them. But now it isn't because before, before the coming of Christ it was a mystery, but now after the coming of Christ it's no longer a mystery. It was a mystery before, because before the coming of Christ it wasn't clear how God would fulfill his promise to Adam and Eve to send a savior. It wasn't clear how he would fulfill his promise to bless the nations through Abraham. It wasn't clear what the purpose of the nation of Israel was. It wasn't clear how the the Gentiles would come to share in God's blessings. It wasn't clear how the prophecies of a Messiah who is both a servant and a king would come true. In that sense, it was a mystery. But Paul is saying it is no longer a mystery. Because in the coming of Jesus Christ to suffer, die, and rise for his people, that mysterious plan of redemption has now been fully revealed. And the task that God gave to Paul was to make that word of God fully known to God's people. That is, Paul, show my people all of the ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of my plan to redeem mankind. Right? Show them how Jesus is the seed of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head. Show them how Jesus is the true ark who saves us from God's judgment. Show them how Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and the one in whom all the nations would be blessed. Show them how Jesus is the true Joseph who was hated and killed by his brothers yet rose to the right hand of power and became the savior of the world. Show them how Jesus is the true Moses, the unlikely leader who would rescue God's people from Satan's power and their slavery to sin. Show them how Jesus is the the true Passover lamb whose blood protects us from the angel of death. Show them how Jesus is the true tabernacle and temple, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Show them how Jesus is bread from heaven and water from a rock for those wandering in the wilderness of this world. Show them how Jesus is the true high priest who enters the most holy place, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the sacrifice of his own perfect life. And who always, always lives to intercede for them like right now. He lives and intercedes for us, a high priest who never dies. Show them. How Jesus is great David's greater son. The true David who slayed a greater enemy than Goliath when he defeated sin, death, Satan, and hell on the cross. The true king who rules in perfect righteousness and justice. Not a man after God's own heart, but a man who possesses God's own heart and who sits on an eternal throne over an unshakable kingdom. You just want to keep going through the Old Testament? Let's just keep going through the Old Testament. Show them how Jesus is the true Solomon who is building the true temple of God, the true wise king in whom are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge who would never turn away from God. Show them how Jesus is the truly blessed man who meditated on God's word day and night from Psalm 1. The righteous sufferer who is crucified and yet rises to save his people from Psalm 22. The anointed king enthroned on Mount Zion in Psalm 2. And the one who sits at God's right hand from Psalm 110. Show them how Jesus is the suffering servant in Isaiah. The true Jeremiah who weeps over his people's sins. The true presence of God who comes to his exiled people in Ezekiel. The son of man who comes on on the clouds and receives all authority in heaven and on earth in Daniel. The prophet who spends three days in the belly of the earth from Jonah. The ruler who comes from Bethlehem in Micah. The humble king who comes to his people riding on a donkey from Zechariah. He is the word who was in the beginning. He created all things. He sustains all things. He is the lion and the lamb, the savior and the judge, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. For from him and through him and to him, to him be the glory forever and ever. Make the word of God fully known. It is all about him. Him we proclaim. Paul, preach Christ. This is the one task I have given you to do that takes priority over every other task in ministry. Make the word of God fully known by showing them how the entirety of my plan of redemption is fulfilled in him. Jesus. That's why Paul sums up his approach approach to preaching the way that he does in verse 28. Look there with me. It's one of my favorite short verses in the entire New Testament. Short phrases. Him we proclaim. Him. It's all about him. We preach Christ. And notice that he says, we, not him, I proclaim and I'm the only one doing it. No, he says, we. You go back to the beginning of Colossians. Who's writing the letter? Paul and Timothy. You go to the end of uh, Colossians. Who else is preaching the gospel? Epaphras. He's talking about Paul and Timothy and Epaphras and Peter and James and John and all genuine ministers of the gospel preach Christ because Christ is what you and I need most. That's why you won't hear Blake preaching and you shouldn't hear Blake preaching himself. He's not going to make himself the point of the sermons. He won't preach self-help tips. He won't preach therapy. He won't preach how to live your best life now. He won't preach health, wealth, and happiness. He won't preach current affairs or how to alleviate poverty. He'll preach Christ because what you and I need most is Christ. E.V. Hill was the pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, California, from 1961 until his death in 2003. And Hill used to tell the story of a woman in his congregation that he called Old 1896. And I'm guessing he never called her that to her face. I'm guessing 1896 is when she was born, right? And Hill said, Old 1896 had the habit of letting young preachers know whether or not they were fulfilling their calling to preach Christ. If, when they started preaching, if she wasn't pleased with the Christ-centeredness of the sermon, old 1896 would start saying, lift him up, lift him up, lift him up, louder and louder. If the preacher didn't start preaching Christ, 1896 would just keep going, lift him up, lift him up, louder and louder until the preacher took notice and started preaching Christ. Old 1896 knew what she needed. She knew what the rest of the congregation needed. She knew what you and I needed. We need Christ. Him we proclaim. Week in and week out, over and over again. We see how contrary this is to our world today, right? Social media platforms like Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all of them, they reward innovation. They reward pumping out new and better content. They train us into thinking that if we want to gain a following and then grow our following, we need to get on the treadmill of always innovating, always pumping out more new stuff, right? You can't do the same thing, old thing, but people won't follow you. You need to constantly innovate. But you and I don't need new things. We need to be reminded of the old story every week. 
Blake's job as your pastor is literally to be a one-trick pony. His one trick should be to preach Christ. But preaching Christ week in and week out doesn't mean a bare and boring rehearsal of the same facts over and over again. It's not to come to service with the same sermon and, and just read it to you again and again, right? His job is to present to you Christ in the fullness of his glory according to the particular passage of scripture that he's preaching from. That means preaching Christ as our savior. It means preaching Christ as our redeemer, as our rescuer, as our king. It means preaching Christ as the one who is high and lifted up, yet who also draws near to the lowly and to the weak and the hurting, right? It means preaching Christ as our high priest and mediator, the one who intercedes for us at God's right hand. It means preaching Christ as our rabbi and our teacher. It means preaching Christ as our brother who was made like us and so who sympathizes with us in our weakness. It means preaching the sufferings of Christ, the sorrows of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ, the pleasures of Christ, the truth of Christ, the glory of Christ, the power of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the fullness of Christ. Blake's job is to preach all of Christ for all of life. And that requires... Warning and teaching. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. How do we proclaim him? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why warning? Well, because Christ the Savior is also Christ the judge. Christ the creator is also Christ the destroyer. This Jesus has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's an increasingly unpopular thing to say today in my area of the, the, the world. Like, people are just like, shut your mouth. Don't ever say that, right? It's just so judgmental, right? But this is the truth of the gospel. This is what we warn people about. The gospel is only good news because of the bad news that precedes it, right? And we need to be warned about that bad news, that you and I have fallen short of God's holy and perfect standard. We've sinned and rebelled against him. We have brought shame upon ourselves and are under God's judgment, right? And because God is a perfect judge, he will judge all who've sinned against him. So much talk in our country today about we need just rulers, we need just authorities, people who tell the truth and who carry out justice perfectly. Do you realize there is a perfect judge? There is a perfect justice coming, and it is Christ. He is the one who rules in perfect righteousness and justice, but that is bad news for you and I because we've all sinned and because he's perfect he will punish sin perfectly but God is also merciful he sent his son the eternal God Jesus Christ into the world to live the life that you and I should have lived and die the death that we deserved and after he died he rose from the dead showing that God accepted his sacrifice so that all who would turn from their sins and trust in him would be reconciled to God brought into God's family and given the hope of eternal life and those who profess to be believers also need to be warned not to continue living in sin because persistently and unrepentantly living in sin is a sign that your profession of faith may not be genuine and if that's the case you are still under God's judgment but if that's you there's good news one we're all sinners right isn't me just say hey like y'all are all sinners this is me too I need to preach this message to myself. And there's good news. If you recognize that you may be having a false profession, like, oh, man, I'm seeing, I actually don't really care about my sin. You can still turn and trust in Christ today. And because he's merciful and he's forbearing to the nth degree, never loses patience with his people, he will turn and forgive you of your sins. So turn and trust in him today. We also need to be taught. Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Teaching is central to the ministry of the gospel, right? Paul had already prayed for the Colossians to grow in understanding the gospel, and that growth in understanding requires teaching. We need to be taught who God is, who we are, who Christ is, what he came to do, and how he calls us to live. We need to be instructed so that we're renewed in our minds and we grow in a manner worthy of God, grow in walking in a manner worthy of God. We need to hear of Christ and how he calls us to live. And the reason that genuine gospel ministries and ministers preach Christ is because Christ 
is the only message that has the power to change anyone and everyone. Do you notice Paul's emphasis on preaching Christ to everyone? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The Colossian church was a diverse church. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were barbarians. That was an actual people group, not people who were just messy and like left their room a wreck. There were actual barbarians and Scythians. They were from Russia. There were slaves and free people. And what did every single one of them need? Christ. What do Democrats need? Christ. What do Republicans need? Christ. What does your black neighbor need? Christ. What does your white neighbor need? Christ. Asian and Indian, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, all need Christ. Christ is the only one who has the power to change anyone and everyone. And that's why Paul gives all of his energy, all of his time, all of his heart to preaching Christ and making the word of God fully known. Because only Christ, preached rightly from the word of God, has the power to mature us in the faith. Look at verse 28 again. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why, Paul? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The purpose of proclaiming Christ through wisdom-filled warning and teaching is to present everyone mature in Christ. The regular preaching of the gospel is at the heart of all growth in the faith. It is the heart. Remove the heart and the body dies. What does this mean for you today? The first thing it means is that the most important thing for this church to do is to preach Christ. You don't need bells and whistles. You don't need a slick production or the best music or the nicest building. None of those things has any bearing whatsoever on your growth in the faith. And there's nothing wrong with them, but they need to be subordinated under the right preaching of the gospel. What you need is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed faithfully week in and week out. That's what you need most. And that's what this church should be about, right? If you had a banner up on the wall, if you ever have a building for yourself, I hear about there's some, uh, some possibilities of a building, or if you could put it up here, just put the sign up. What, are, what is CCBC about? Him we proclaim. That's what this church is about. It's about proclaiming Christ and growing in Christ. And that also means that when you're looking for a church, if you were ever to move on from Fort Smith or move on from CCBC for whatever reason, you need to prioritize above all else finding a church that preaches the gospel faithfully. Not the health and wealth gospel. Not the therapeutic, moralistic gospel of a God who just wants you to be happy and nice, right? Not the gospel of works that preaches Jesus but then calls you to save yourself, right? But the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you ever move on from CCBC or move from Fort Smith, make sure that at the top of your list of what to look for in a church is preaching the gospel. Preaching Christ in all his fullness. Not a watered down Jesus, not a Jesus who's your savior but not your Lord. Right? It's okay to look for churches where you enjoy the music or there are ministries for you to be involved in, but it is most important that the church preaches Christ in all of his fullness. Right? If the gospel isn't being preached at a church, you shouldn't be at that church. You know how when you're searching for an item online, right, you can set filters to narrow down the search results. This is fresh on my mind because I was looking for a uh, dishwasher for our house recently because our dishwasher broke and started leaking. So I wanted a GE, right? But not just a GE, one with a sound rating under 50 decibels and one that was under $500, and one that was stainless steel, and 24 inches wide. By the time I was done setting all the filters, there was like two dishwashers left for me to choose from, right? But I'll tell you what, it made my choice a lot easier. It made my choice a lot easier. When you make preaching the fullness of Christ one of your filters in finding a church, it may mean that there aren't many churches to choose from. But that's okay. Because you're removing from your search churches who are not going to help you uh, to grow in the faith or feed you as you need to be fed. I'd go so far as to saying if you or other people you know are thinking about moving to an area and you can't find a church that preaches the gospel in that area, you shouldn't move. I would strongly encourage you to reconsider. That may mean not taking a job that's good for your future or your career, but it's a decision you should make because while your job is important and your livelihood is important, the condition of your eternal soul is far more important, right? 
you need to make sure you live somewhere where you can find a church that preaches Christ. And that's for the kids here too. If y'all ever move on, you go to college, you need to pick a college where you can find a church that preaches the gospel. That's why the gospel is so central uh, and the word of God is so central to your services here, right? That's why you'll see it in every element of the services, uh, in the, the, the call to worship, to the songs, to the prayers, to the preaching. All of it is meant to help us understand and respond to the gospel. It's why Mindy, where's Mindy? Raise your hand, Mindy. Are you around here? That's why Mindy leads her Bible study. Make the word of God fully known. Utilize those things. Use those resources. Take advantage of them. They're helping you to grow in the faith, right? You need to feast on the word and on Christ so that you grow healthier and stronger in every way. And every church has lots of room to grow, right? I'm sure you all have lots of room to grow. I'm sure Blake doesn't do everything right. In fact, I know he doesn't do everything right. None of us do, right? But what I am sure of is that he is going to hold out to you Christ in all of his fullness because he knows Christ is a source of your growth in the faith. Preaching Christ is the means God has specifically chosen for our growth in the faith. It is the mark of all authentic Christian ministry. So, don't be fooled by counterfeits, right? Just because a church calls himself a church doesn't mean that they're doing the work that God has given them to do. Like with counterfeit bags, look closely. Check the stitching and the logo and the packaging. Make sure that the message they proclaim is Christ. Him we proclaim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to behold the mystery made known in Christ. Lord, we even think about your, your sovereignty over all of history. You have given us the, the blessing and the gift of living on this side of the cross. We didn't choose when we were going to be born into the world. We could have been born before the coming of Christ, and we still would have been looking for the answer to that mystery, but we thank you that you have allowed us to be born on this side of the cross, and we can say, yes, the plan of redemption has been fulfilled in Christ, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you for that great gift, Father. We pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of God, that you would help us to hold fast until the end, and that you would bless not only CCBC, but also CBC, and cause us to be places where Christ is proclaimed in all of his fullness, week in and week out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.